podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Christopher says, is Perth Scorchers being so dominant a good thing for the Big Bash? And what's been so key about their prolonged success? I might get in trouble here, certainly with people from Western Australia. So I wrote a piece when they won their third or fourth title about how essentially the Big Bash was set up so that all the teams had separate money pools for the Big Bash and everything else. And the reason was to keep the league fair. That was in part, I believe, because they had two Melbourne teams and two Sydney teams. And obviously it was going to be a lot harder for you know them to uh, fudge the numbers in the way it would be for the single, um, the single city teams. Now, uh, that didn't happen. And there were certainly deals. And I wrote a big um, expose about it with Dan Bredick about the many different people that that told us about it and the interesting thing was when i wrote it a lot of western australians were like well if you dig around long enough you'll always find someone who doesn't like justin langer most people i talked to were friends of justin langer and they didn't even know that he was breaking the rules they were just giving us the information um, and also it's probably far enough back now and i don't think this person works at cricket australia or, or the couple of people don't work at cricket australia um Cricket Australia ones giving me the information because they were really worried that on the on the face of it they said i think the official statement in my piece was um it's all fine. It will even itself out. But uh, behind closed scenes, uh, behind closed doors, behind scenes of closed doors, they uh, they were actually letting me know that it was a big issue and that they didn't really want to be in a position where they had a uh, a salary cap um, problem with Perth, but clearly, well, not salary cap, uh, salary regulations um, uh, issue with Perth, but they obviously thought there was one. I haven't covered the Big Bash really since I worked in it. So when was that? Twenty. 1819, I think, was when I last worked with Stars. Uh, I, I know they've won the last two. I don't know if it's the same issue. One thing I would say is that even if and I, even if you look away from the very the very basic side of things, of there were certainly times when they were underpaying their big bash players in order to stack their team. That there's no doubt that they were doing that. But they do and always have really understood the T20. Um, cricket i think they had a fantastic analyst i think they had really good role definition of a lot of their players you know they really worked out in a sort of a way that perhaps maybe chennai did a very good method that worked at home for them which meant that they were consistently going to be around the finals and once you're around the finals in t20 tournaments you've got a big chance of winning again their home conditions are so different to everywhere else in australia i think that also gives them a big advantage um but they're also and you've got to give them credit for this there's so many good players that they have come up within that system over the last few years for whatever reason perhaps maybe more slanting towards the white ball than red ball but either either way you know they certainly come up with a lot of options um from that perspective and that has to be a part of their system so i think they deserve credit for that but why they've won the last couple of years, I'm not 100% sure. Um, is it good for the Big Bash is a really, really interesting qu- question, Christopher, because in some ways, I kind of think when someone's really good at something, it gives you a narrative. You know, 
whatever that may be, you know, going into each year, when, you know, Chennai were really good or Mumbai were really good, um, you know, and you look at, you know, Manchester United or Collingwood in, in, in Aussie rules football, having one team be really dominant at the start, it sounds like it's the wrong thing. Sometimes I wonder if it's not the right thing to have happened. You get sort of automatic villains. You get the team that no one wants to win anymore. Um, uh, you know, uh, one team is seen as, you know, having really worked out the league, whatever that may be. Um, I wonder if it's not a, uh, a better system than just having the same teams win. Uh, sorry, having a random team win every year. The one thing I would say is I think this is right now. The last four years, only two teams have won. Not sure that is, the, you know, I think it was two years of the sixes, now two years. Um, of 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 the scorchers i don't think in that from that perspective um they'd be massively keen with what's happened there aditya says if capital dev imran khan richard hadley and ian botham always put imran twice that's how good imran khan was as an all-rounder had been around in t20 era whose skills do you think would have been best suited this is now quite obviously going to have to be a video i make one day um uh, I'm going to write great all-rounders T20, and then later I'm going to look at my board and be confused at why I've written that down. Um, but yes, it's a brilliant question. Okay. Well, Imran Khan is probably the sort of guy that would have got overpaid for the first part of his career and then would have become great at the end because that's what we know of what happened with him when when he finally got professional um, and started to work out how to match his natural athleticism with cricket skills. My big problem with him is, even if he grows up in this era, how aggressive is his batting going to be? He's just not a naturally aggressive batter. He was a real plodder. But he was such a good plodder by the end of his career that, you know, he was the pinch blocker, right? Made whole videos about it. Um, he would have been a very good number four nerdler if that's what your team wanted. And so he's the sort of player that maybe if he lost early wickets, you could throw him up the order. And then if you didn't lose any wickets, you could move him down the order. That has value. Richard Hadley's batting is very overrated compared to everyone else on this list. His 100 was in a match where, um, one of a better term, you know, West Indies stopped trying, I think is the best way of putting it. It's actually, if you ever want to have a look at the, the footage of that um, innings, it is worth going back and having a look at it um, from, from that perspective of... Um, <laughs> there are too many times you see a test team just stop trying, but it was remarkable. Um, that's his test uh, numbers, and he still made runs. I'm just trying to – I just want to have a look at his one-day record. So he averaged 20 in one-day cricket, strike rate of 75. Those are pretty good. Uh, averaged 24 in the state cricket. Yeah, I think he has a role. My interesting take on, on Hadley would be what kind of a batter would he have been knowing that he could get paid more money for it? He didn't really need to be much better than a batter. He was the world's best bowler, right? He didn't need to be that much of a better batter in order to make uh, – he wouldn't have made any more money from New Zealand cricket or from Knots for being a slightly better batter. But certainly for, you know, getting it to the point where it was dangerous. Rather, I think it, I think his batting was more handy um, and, and decent rather than dangerous or anything else. Hadley grows up in an era where, you know – being a batter is is more advantageous to him. Does and he could hit, and he could score at a decent rate. I wonder if he becomes a better player uh, from that perspective. My first instinct here was Capel Dev because I think Capel Dev was a better consistent hitter than Ian Botham and was a better bowler than Ian Botham. So from that and a better fielder than Ian Botham, you know, especially you know late career Botham, obviously you know, and we've seen players. 
do that before where they don't take their fitness, uh, you know, they get, you know, ahead of the game and sort of pull back. And that's what both of them did. Whereas I don't think Kapil Dev would have done that. So if based on all of that, I think Kapil Dev would have taken, you know, would have bowled overs one, three, and five, probably come back for one in the death. Um, could have batted, could have sort of batted six or seven without any problems with a bit of flexibility on his batting. I think with both of them, I see him more as maybe two overs up front, two overs at the end. Um, and then with his batting, you would have said that both of them could have batted anywhere from one to seven. Um, so those two are not too far. I have those two in a tier just above the, the other two, which is weird because I think if you're talking test cricket, I probably have the other two in a tier ahead of those two. Um, but what a fantastic thing that I hopefully uh, don't think about for the rest of the year, but quite possibly will. Graham says, I really love your story about South African googly bowlers revolutionizing the sport. Do you think something similar should happen uh, in T20 cricket? The knuckleball, I think, is an interesting one because I'm not sure you will ever see three or four bowlers in the same attack rhythm, but you might get two or three bowlers who have the ability to bowl the knuckleball. I don't know if you'll ever get to the point where you'll have you know, um, a bunch of specialist knuckleballs bowling at the same time. Um, I've said for a very long time that I think all finger spinners should go on to bowl the knuckleball because they have longer fingers generally. Um, I don't want to get too much into NFL people measuring people's hands because it's a weird pseudoscience. But there's no doubt that knuckleball from that perspective um, plays a, uh, you know, I think will that play an improved role. But again, I don't think it's as destructive as what the wrong was in its time. It's, the interesting thing is here that you've gone with knuckleball and carom balls and the carom ball, I would take the carom ball away. I just don't think it's ever going to be – it's too easy to pick. And it doesn't do anything particularly special unless you make it really obvious. Um, and it probably then really needs heavily spinning wickets. One of the great things about the knuckleball, of course, is the knuckleball is designed by pitchers. So it even works when you bowl a full toss. Not as well, but a little bit. The, the interesting thing is you pick these deliveries, Graham, and you've talked about T20 cricket, whereas the actual ball that's had the biggest um, change in cricket is probably the wobble ball. And I would say that England have probably gone into test matches already with three and four wobble ball specialists. So that's the ball that has had the huge impact um, and has done what you've done. So, yeah, I think those things can happen and probably will happen again. Kennedy says, what is your perspective on Gary Balance's move to Zimbabwe? Not as an individual choice, but for the system there, does it help or harm? I suppose. You talk about um, Cartwright and De Grandhomme as well. I don't think De Grandhomme is going to do it. Because there's just no money in in that cricket. I would assume he just wants to play franchise cricket, which makes sense for him at his stage in his career. Hilton Cartwright, I don't know. It's possible, I suppose, but I would think he would still make less money playing for Zimbabwe than he would playing for um, in Australian cricket. But maybe I'm wrong. Certainly, it's easier playing in Australian cricket. So the Gary Balance thing. The racism stuff, I think, is interesting because, you know, Zimbabwe's probably was more progressive when it came to race at times than South Africa was. They've been also more um, reactionary to it at times. So it's been a really, really interesting last 25 years, I suppose, or maybe even longer than that in Zimbabwe's cricket when it comes to that. So then getting balance back when 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 he's basically left another career because of race uh, racism scandal and because of what he said, that's really interesting. From a cricket perspective, Gary Balance is so good. And I know that everyone's going to have a memory of him as a test cricketer. And that's absolutely fine. And I think in the end, he fizzled out. But when you go back through the first-class records, every I, I remember looking at this every year. 
he was the guy who had the highest um, batting average and um, outside of Johnny Bairstow. It was like Balance and Bairstow were always the two guys who just absolutely dominated county cricket. That kind of knowledge, um, that kind of skill set, I think can only be a, a you know a plus for Zimbabwe going going ahead. The fit and everything else, I don't know. I don't know Gary Balance. I've never met him. I don't know if those comments were exactly what he thinks and he just got caught that time or you know or, or what the situation is i don't know how he fits back into zimbabwean cricket culture you know uh with everything that they've got going with them remember they've got a great dressing room they're on a high at the moment you bring gary balance in maybe that gives them the top class batter that they desperately need maybe it provides other distractions i just don't know from that perspective but if you're just talking about from a knowledge and a, you know technical help and being able to guide some of the other young batters gary balance is going to help them on and off the field without any doubt um, uh, from that perspective. I don't know how many more years he's going to play, of course, but... I'm not sure if there is a hairier sport than cricket. From the early greats WG Grace and the demon Fred Spotheth onwards, cricket has always been Hasut, Boom, Gooch and Dev with their upper lip work. Shoab and Imran's incredible manes. Not to mention Lily's incredible chest rug. Our sport loves curated hair. And so does Manscaped. They just look after the bit that you can't see. So if you want a cricket-inspired downstairs pubic moustache... We can think of no item better than the Lawnmower 4.0 from Manscaped. Whether you're steaming in from the ladies' end or mounting a strenuous rear guard, always put your trust in Manscaped, who will look after your lower order. So go to manscaped.com and buy their kit with my red inker code, all one word, and get yourself 20% off and make yourself 20% sexier. Gary says, who's your dark horse for the Women's T20 World Cup? I'm not sure that is a dark horse for the T20 Women's World Cup. I suppose if South Africa had picked their home team in home conditions, I would have felt a little bit more. Um, the big three teams make the most sense. Kind of want to throw New Zealand in there, but I've been looking at the stats for New Zealand. I'm not sure I feel comfortable enough with with them being in there at the moment. Um, it's hard to go past Australia. So I've done a video uh, on the uh, the women batters, and I'll do another one on women bowlers. When you look at the data, especially across the franchise leagues, you really realize how many good Australian players are out there. It's it's bleak if you're not an Australian um, women's T20 player at the moment. Uh, you know, there's obviously individual players and a couple of teams who have a few players, but nothing like what Australia has. So I would have to say Australia. That said, I, I did, going through the numbers, I didn't mind some of the England players as well, but I just don't think they're on that level. Bloody Bugger says, what is the percentage uh, country breakdown of your audience on YouTube and podcasts? Um, YouTube is, I think we're around, we hover around 50% from India, and then you've got 10% from the UK, 10% from US, around 8 9% from um, Australia, very high, uh, uh, 3 or 4% from New Zealand and Pakistan and places like that. Um, I think that's YouTube. Uh, what is the podcast? Podcast is 35% English, I think, maybe 20% Indian, 10% Australian, 10% American, and then, uh, you know, name your other cricket countries, kind of make up the rest. I, that's off the top of my head, bloody bugger. Uh, but that's my memory. You can really tell there's a big difference in the different ways that different countries consume their cricket. And it's it's again different on my uh, my written work where I think I have, I think Pakistan flies up in the, in the written work for whatever, probably just because I, I have written a lot about Pakistan in, in the past, although not that much since I've had the emailer, so I'm not sure uh, why that is. But you definitely see different patterns in different kinds of mediums um, uh, right across the board. 
now everywhere you go, it's a slightly different pattern. Uh, it's really, really interesting. The one thing that usually holds firm for me anyway, and I think it was the same when I was at Crick Info and when I've looked at other websites is it's almost always 10% US, uh, which is very interesting and something major league cricket will be happy with. James says, do you know of any players who've learned another language primarily for sledging purposes? And do you have any funny stories about it? So I know of players who've learned swear words, certainly for, uh, for that purpose. And I can't think, I don't think anyone's ever learned another language for sledging, but I've got a, a distant memory of a player trying to say a sentence that was a sledge in, I think it was in Tamil that he got from a Tamil friend of his or something like that. But I, I don't remember the full details of it, but I, I've got a feeling that something like that happened. What I would say is that um, Jack Chantry, when he was playing, he was playing against Ed Cowan once and he, I want to say hired me, but obviously didn't pay me, but asked me to come up with very specific sledges for Ed Cowan in the game that he then delivered, of which, as much as anything, completely confused Ed Cowan at how Jack Chantry knew certain things that I was that I had been feeding through. Um, so, yeah, I do think players do stuff like that. I mean, I don't think anyone would go to the, the level of learning another language, but they pro- they definitely learn some swear words in other languages. Um and uh, they certainly use private stories that they've gotten from random sources sometimes. And not just, like in the Jack Chantry's case, it was more just to put Eddie off. It wasn't, they weren't horrendous sledges or anything like that. I think one of the sledges was, I heard Gideon Haig wrote your book. <laughs> you know, I suppose that could have annoyed Eddie. But um, but from that perspective, you know, a, a bit of a different um, kind of sledge. But the point is that you're, you're trying to, you know, confuse them, get in the head a little bit. And that sort of stuff, I think, does happen um more but i mean good luck to anyone learning a whole language just to sled. i mean i don't think ian chapel would have gone to that level right Ian chapel will probably be upset that i've made him the chief sledger of all time jake says uh what are the ipl owners hoping to get from owning these teams in south africa and the uae without indian players how they're going to make much money um or are they going to say the super king's brand is strong enough that csa can CSK fans in India will watch JSK. There's a lot of SKs there, Jake. It's not just for that. It, there's a, a bunch of different reasons. A, uh, I think they want uh, to be as 12 months as possible. Having those other leagues allows them to continue their social media, their content creation, their brand recognition, all those little things. Even if it's just you know not, not on the same level as the IPL. The biggest problem with the IPL at the moment is it's a rock concert that lasts a couple of months and then disappears. So from a, from a branding perspective, from eventually, you know, Mumbai TV and Mumbai Indians TV perspective, when they all have their own podcast, when they all have their own, you know, when social media gets up, all those sorts of things really matter. Another one is staff development. Again, you've got a two month tournament and then you've got 10 months where nothing happens. You really want all your coaches to be upskilled. You want them to be all um, in the same system. You don't want them going off for 10 months and doing something completely different and then coming back and clashing with anyone. And we're talking about everyone from the social media managers through to analysts, coaches, you know, uh, physios, medical staff, the whole thing. It, the longer you can keep them on the payroll, I think the more you can get them working the way that you want them like a well-oiled machine. The third thing is for your overseas players, uh, you know, this is allowing uh, these owners then to get into a position where, you know, they can control Trent Bolt's future rather than Cricket New Zealand having a go with it. Um, they, if they're his main, if 
They hire his employer and they're looking after his medical all year round and they're looking after his physio bills and insurance and whatever else he needs so he doesn't need to worry about it. Then he plays New Zealand when they and, and, and he say that he wants to rather than him having to play for New Zealand to be able to keep up with all those other things. Just things like facilities. I've talked about this a lot. You know, the ability to get people, quality people to throw balls to you, um, co- having access to coaches all year round. The more competitions they have, the more they can actually do stuff like that. And then they uh, might eventually, they'll probably even hire people in different areas to be specialist coaches for people out of season, which if you have a 12-month system is, again, a much easier way to do it. And I'm forgetting the last one. Oh, the last one is if they own all these leagues, if one of these leagues does have a breakout, they also then have the ability to profit from that. I would think the only one that anyone thinks, or the only two that people think are going to have a breakout at the moment, other than the PSL, which obviously the IPL owners are not going to buy any teams in, but the ones that they think are possible for a breakout are the 100. So IPL owners have already tried to uh, buy teams there and uh, Major League Cricket. And IPL owners, I think, have at least two teams. Uh, I don't know if the final ownership has come out, but I, I think it's two teams or maybe it's three teams that they've been looking at buying there. Again, makes perfect sense from that perspective, right? You you buy a, ch- uh, a chunk of it, you do all the all the stuff that I was talking about, but then if Major League Cricket does work, you, you're already there. So, um, uh, oh, the only other thing I would say is it also very uh, very much helps with scouting. Um, you've got your coaches and your analysts and your you know directors of cricket and your GMs and everyone actually seeing all the players around the world rather than just in the last couple of months before the draft seeing them. Because when you do that, you make a lot of recency bias uh, mistakes. Whereas if you're seeing them all year and you're seeing them against your players, you can judge them a little bit better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think there's quite a few reasons. Ian says, Alex Stewart credits his winters in his early 20s with Midland Guildfield in Australia playing uh, a significant part in getting him ready for international cricket. Should this and playing in other countries be a way that young English cricketers spend their winters these days? Or does the white ball franchise calendar kill this? Look, uh, it's funny. I was talking to someone in English cricket recently about the best way to prepare English cricketers. And I was talking about having development squads from players from the age of 17 to 22, 23, and literally having them play in overseas um, conditions, you know, Australia, South Africa, India, Sri Lanka, West Indies, wherever it may be, for a good chunk of the year as much as possible. And this guy was saying, well, how are we going to do that? They're all going to be in franchise leagues. And I said, if you look at it, there aren't that many 21 and 22-year-old players in franchise leagues at the moment uh, as, as overseas players. Locally, obviously, yes. As, as 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 franchise players, unless you're going to pick someone like Doyle Brevis because you want him or, or Cameron Green because you want them for a long period of time, most leagues aren't going to do that. They're going to pick the player who's best, which is usually going to be players between the age of 23 and I don't know, 32, let's say. So from that perspective, I think that there is still something that um, teams could do in order to fix their players. And the, the biggest problem is that when you, when you are young, you are obviously perfect in your home conditions and you're going to struggle when you play away there are many ways that england india australia specifically can can cheat that system club cricket in australia club cricket in uh, league cricket in england um you know academies in sri lanka and india and these you know even private tournaments in 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 places um you could enter you could give money to you know west indies cricket and enter your team as 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 a i don't know i was gonna say franchise but you know, like a first-class team uh, from the outside to play against them. There are many different things that you could do uh, from that perspective. I really like the West Indies as a place to go and play your cricket uh, when you're younger. 
because the pitches are so different. So, you know, you kind of, it's maybe the one place where your players can get so much access to different cricket. And they could also play club cricket in Barbados as well. Like, you know, there, there are many different things that you can do in that situation. And um, I do, the stories are just obvious. You just talk to the, the players who've managed to do it in, you know, in any direction, if they've managed to play in another place, um, that the benefits are just absolutely huge. You people in different parts of the world, this is really obvious, but they just think about cricket differently. So when you have the ability to think about cricket differently, you're opened up to new methods and new thought processes. Um, if you can do that to someone who's 17, 18, 19, as they're developing, still play their cricket at home, still make sure they get their legs um, under them, and, you know, lots of games at home, I think that's a, a brilliant way of doing it. And I think we'll see that more and more. DM says, have you seen much of Blair Tickner? Any insights why he keeps getting picked in New Zealand squads despite poor to middling domestic record and poor international returns so far? Uh, don't get it as a New Zealand fan. Look, I have actually. I think a friend of his reached out to me years ago about what he needed to do with his record. I haven't looked at it that much, but at that stage, I think the there was a very bad sort of, he didn't have a great early record in his career. Then he had a very good period. And I think a lot of people rated him on the back of that. But I haven't seen how much his numbers stack up of, of recent times. So I don't want to I don't want to go um, and, and suddenly say that I'm an expert on Blair Tickner because I probably haven't thought about him for the last couple of years. But I, I certainly think there's quite a few people who believe that um, he's a, a, a very good quality bowler. I think he's got – what's the best way of putting it? He's got a very weird – sort of release doesn't he i don't is it release he's quite an odd bowler i think and i think in t20 cricket there is a there is a theory that bowlers who have maybe a slightly different release uh, are quite handy just having a look at his record i mean he averages 22 that's a pretty good strike record um i agree with you when you look at him i'm not sure you always see it i'm trying to remember the games i saw him play did he play against india recently that would have been the last time i saw him was that um uh, look, I think he's a fringe level international player. I don't, you know, I don't know how much injuries are playing a part or what the situation is. Um, but I, I certainly don't think he's a terrible bowler. But also, I don't think he's ever going to be a, you know, a, a frontline international bowler. But he might be the sort of guy that you have in your squad, um, and then you know, when when needed, uh, you bring him in. Carl says, announcers were shocked that Head was admitted. I feel like for two months you've been saying that Australia wouldn't pick him, but probably true. Do they generally not have those sorts of conversations with uh, with teams before a series? Yeah. I've said this for a while. There's a really interesting thing here, Kyle, where in America, and I'm assuming you're the Kyle that is from America, actually, uh, but ask the questions usually. Um, in America, people go, uh, the, the broadcasters get all this access beforehand. So, you know, they'll go and talk to the quarterback and, you know, um, the, the the coach and, you know, and someone else from the team the day before. And in basketball, it's a similar thing. You get the head coach sometimes and some of the senior players come in and they chat through a few things. And it's kind of an off-the-record-y chat. But it, why are you doing this at the moment? Is this working for you? What's the theory behind this, you know? Um, I saw this guy. He used to be really good. You don't have him anymore. There's a reason he's not around, all that sort of stuff. It's brilliant. And it's I don't know how many others – I only know of it through American sports. I don't know how many other people do it. The problem for me is that you talk about announcers. Most announcers, I think everyone on that test TV coverage today would have been a former player, I think. Um, I didn't see all the names, but uh, it felt like the, 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 the global feed that I was watching certainly um, mostly had former players. Former players aren't journalists, and they're also not really trained like journalists, so they don't go out and find, and find anything – 
there should be staff within um, uh, Star. Is it Star that have it? God, I can't remember who has the rights yet. Whoever the home broadcaster is, who's who's rattling off that information. Uh, I I found that even when you try and do it, they don't quite engage as much. Really, what you need is probably you know an hour long thing beforehand to say, okay, head's probably not going to play. Here's why we have heard that. And I've also found that you know the, the better former players will get out on the field and just chat to people and they hear things. And Steve Harmison and Darren Goff are absolutely brilliant at this. Um, they just get out in the field and talk to people and you know they'll come back to you and they'll you'll tell you something and be like are you sure because that goes against everything no no that's what we were just told that's going to happen and uh, so from that perspective you can learn a lot of things from that but that you do have to be proactive and not all cricket broadcasters are like that and it, if you don't have that system then what you really need is a really good system of some kind of a journalist working with the broadcaster getting as much information as possible and passing that on but then the broadcasters still have to listen and engage with it and uh, you know that's probably uh, part of the problem but they should have access to the teams i think that's if you're paying millions of dollars for rights i really think that you part of that should be that you get a chat with the captain and the coach before the game just get some info from them maybe one or two star players maybe if someone's coming up on a uh, on a milestone or something as well all those sorts of things and i think it's a mistake the cricket there's a few things that i think cricket it's just an absolute no-brainer that we we don't do um and i think it's a real shame uh, Piran Jay says, hello, Jared, did you see the video of Jadeja applying something on his finger reported by Fox? I didn't see that. Um, so uh, that obviously just happened in the game today. So if you're listening to the podcast, maybe by Saturday, you'll know what the hell this question is really about. But um, I didn't see that at all. Really, really interesting if Fox has picked it up only because Fox is the away broadcaster. And generally, the away broadcasters, uh, you know, don't pick stuff up. It's the home broadcasters. And you'll be shocked to know that very rarely do they notice anything with their team. Um, that has gone wrong in those situations. And Mole says, uh, do you feel that the previous uh, BGT isn't spoken about enough? Are you kidding? Is it spoken about enough? Half of Twitter has the Gabba Twitter as their, uh, uh, you know, in their Twitter profile. It couldn't be spoken about more. Literally, there are sentences. I, I went to buy a sausage roll the other day in London and someone started talking to me about it. No, I, I don't. It was an incredible series. Um, and I think he has mentioned quite a bit. Um, life moves on. I mean, it's going to be one of those series, I think, especially for Indian fans, it's going to be like, you know, 2005 um, England. You know, it's going to be one of those series that stays uh, with people forever, especially of a certain generation. Jeez. Uh, in my line of work, uh, it is not spoken about too little. It has been mentioned all the time. It's a great series as well. Like it was a properly entertaining series i've got no problems with uh people enjoying it or going on and on about it i remember when i wrote my book about the history of test cricket test cricket the unauthorized biography probably not available in any bookstores anymore i don't even know where you can find it. maybe on kindle um yeah when i wrote that book i remember really not wanting to focus too much on 2001 australia india or 2005 ashes and then you go through the history of cricket and you really do realize why those stood out. And, you know, I still, I probably wrote less on them than other people would have just because I felt like they'd been so well covered and, and people knew the stories a little bit more. But they were fantastic series and they kind of deserve um, to be covered from that perspective. And, um, uh, and I, th I, I don't, obviously, the, um, the series you were talking about is not on that level. But there's something about it being in COVID and India having so many injuries and, um, you know, all the different subplots and storylines and and everything about that series um it felt like every time he 
the Indian fans abused a player, that player would win them or a test or be good for them in the next test. <laughs> um, uh, you, so I, I do think from that perspective, it was really, really a brilliant um, series and should be remembered for a long time. But I think it gets talked about a fair bit. <laughs> Fake Tree Spirit says, what is the benefit of replacing one of your informed guys who will likely be a senior player uh, role in the next year? for being left-handed and iffy against spin with a lesser left-hander who's iffy against spin. I don't think Renshaw is as iffy against spin. I get your left-hander point. I don't think that's why Travis Head... I, Travis Head wasn't left out because he was a left-hander. We know that because they picked another left-hander. They both would have been left out if if Green was available. So I think that is part of it. But Travis Head was left out, and there's a previous video on this if you want to go and have a look at it. He's terrible in Asia. He's not, he wasn't left out because um, he bats on one side or the other. He's been left out because he's never really made any runs away from Australia. And specifically, he is thought to be very, very weak against spin, even more so when he's not facing it in, in Australia. And the record points to that. I didn't think he was even going to make the squad. I thought they were going to leave him at home. That's how much I thought they weren't going to bring him in. Your overall point, though, is really interesting. And, and I did talk about it on 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 that other video that we've just done after the after the first day's play, because the interesting thing becomes they're now saying he's the eighth best batter in that squad. That's quite a slide down for, from head. Also, if you're just going to pick another left-hander who's making a comeback anyway, I'm I'm not sure why you wouldn't just give the position. I I, I I've got no problem with Renshaw playing ahead of head in in that case. Don't know why I went ahead of head there. Terrible choice of words, but um. I've got no problem with that from a cricket perspective because I think Renshaw is probably a better player of spin. But I, I have more of an issue in doing it in this particular way at this particular time. If Renshaw wasn't first choice anyway, <laughs> I'm not I'm not 100% sure why um, they wouldn't have just given Head that position. And if that's the case, he's just does that mean he's just not going to play um, in, in this series? Which is fine, which is why I said at the start they should have said he was a non-playing member of the of the squad and he's just over there to get as much net practice as possible and you know deal with a bunch of mentors and you know talk to some spin experts and some batters who are good against spin come up with some theories I don't know bump into Raul Dravid a couple of times in the nets and pick his brains whatever you can do was I don't know did he I suppose Raul Dravid was finished at, Ch at, at RCB by the time Head was there I don't know if they know each other but you know what I mean force yourself on him if you have to not physically that's wrong but you know go up to Raul and just start talking about um facing spin and whoever else is around um there would be some other great people there obviously Dan Vittori is there from Australia as well um so yes that is why I thought he should have gone but you're right now that they've gone there and there was a spot available it just feels even weirder Rob says, uh, because of the vagaries of 19th century um, pitches and the impact on stats, is there any objective way to compare WG Grace to other great post-19th century players? It's tricky. I think we can. I think we know how great he was. And I've, I'm sure I've told this story before, but there was a year when he scored more first-class hundreds than the rest of English cricket combined. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's such a great... I mean, it just shows just how... Uh, he had just worked out batting at a time I, I was i was doing something the other day it might have been on william clark yeah i think it was on william clark who was one of the first early great bowlers and um nicholas felix his name came up and he's obviously a great batter and he was thought to be probably one of the best batters before um grace and there was about three of them i forget the names of the other three but there was about three guys between 1800 and 1850 they were all thought to be great and i think all of their averages are around 18 um in first class cricket 
it just tells you how tough a game it was that Grace came into. And if you look at WG Grace, I'm, so I'm just bringing up his batting average quickly. If you look up his first-class batting average, he averaged 39. And his first-class career started in 1865 and went through to 1908. It just – people weren't averaging 39 or 40 type averages – until the end of his career. And he did it from the start. And there's no doubt. I mean, you know, we've all got this image of the old fat WG Grace. He was a hurdler. He played football. Um, he was a really good athlete when he was young. You know, the reason we've got this image of him being old and fat is because uh, the last 20 years of his career, he was old and fat. He wasn't always particularly like that. He was always a big guy, which might've made it easier to do the hurdles. I suppose you have to be taller to do the hurdles, don't you? Um, from from that perspective, I mean, we it's something that um, me and Cheyenne are doing at the moment is the you know the fifty best player, uh, fifty best batters in Test cricket, and we're looking through it. We're, he's not going to qualify. He played twenty two tests and he averaged thirty two. Still good, but certainly um, uh, not as transformative, especially because that was later on when people were starting to get a bit better with the bat. But even for that era, that was still pretty good, and he was well and truly beyond his best. But by the time Test cricket started, he was past his best. Is my guess. Uh, without having going back through the first class records, but but what I would say is that we first class record. If you compare his first class record to what the averages were in that period, he's just absolutely dwarfing everyone else. And for those who don't know the full story, basically he was one of the first cricketers who grew up in an era when there was underarm bowling and overarm bowling. And so what he did to combat those two different things that were happening at the same time was he had a front foot game and a back foot game. And before that, players were either front foot players or back foot players. And by that, I mean, they went on their front foot or they went on their back foot. They didn't uh, work out where the ball was coming and, and act that way. So in that way, WG Grace invents modern batting. How many players can we say have invented it? So if you're looking from an objective point of view, he outscored the rest of cricket one year. He was averaging double what other greats were, um, you know, from from a similar uh, uh, career arc when we look at first class cricket. And then he plays for fifty years. <laughs> Is that right? Was it fifty? It's almost fifty years. It's a ridiculous amount of first class cricket. Um, I mean, we know objectively that WG Grace was great. It's very hard to compare him to other players. But I have, if, if you ask me, who the most talented fifty batters of all time are. I would have no problem putting him in that list. Um, he won't make our top 50 test batters for a number of reasons, as I was saying before, but he's a very honorable mention um, from that perspective. Uh, absolutely uh, fantastic player. It's a great question, though. And, it, and it's tough. It's, it's tough to work out Bradman to Tendulkar. And they were playing a very similar sport. WG Grace to Verrett Coley, they're not, it's almost not even the same sport at that point. And so you, you know, you have to factor all that in, but you do also have to factor in. It's the whole thing with Bradman when people go, oh, you know, he was playing farmers and, you know, and guys who played on the weekend was, I was like, yeah, so was everyone else. No one else was averaging hundred to be that much better than everyone else in your era is still a remarkable thing. And, you know, Viv Richards as a one day player is certainly someone who stands out, you know, Don Bradman, you know, uh, Imran Khan throughout the 80s. We've had, you know, the odd a moment of that. WG Grace certainly fits into that where you just like, you know, I don't know what you would say. What would If you were saying the best standout players of, of their time, you know, there's absolutely no doubt that 
uh, WG Grace is in the 10 most, uh, the best standout players of all time. Just also, um, just for fun, he also took 2,809 wickets, an average of 18. <laughs> fun, fun times. All right. Uh, Dimitri says, feels like we went away from grinding openers for a bit. Uh, but now between the success of the West Indies and seeing guys like Chandra Singer come to first class, there is renaissance on the card. See, I I disagree. Chris Rogers, Dean Alga, Dom Sibley, Alistair Cook. Come on, everyone. Spit some names at me. Don't put them in the comments because then it will ruin it when I go back and look for questions. There's a lot of um, grinding openers that have been around. I think there was certainly a move sort of with the Hayden Saywag thing of and maybe Triscothic as well, of looking for players who had a bit of a, a bit of a bash at the front and gave you that. And I know my friend uh, Muhammad Khan, who's obviously worked for quite a few CPL teams and he's one of the smartest people I know when talking about cricket. He says if you look at the history of successful teams, they almost always have an attacking opener, which is a really, really interesting uh, thing. I'm not sure you'd need an attacking opener to be uh, a, a great team. And I think we've seen other very, very good teams without that. Um, you know, you'd probably say that, that the great South African team of what, whenever they were, 2007 to whenever they, they fell apart, um, you would certainly say that, you know, Graham Smith is not really an attacking opener. And, and certainly even at the other end, they didn't always have um, someone like that. But I get his general theory, you know, certainly with Greenwich and um, and Hayden uh, are probably two very, very strong versions of that, even Slater uh, before them. Uh, or sorry, before Hayden. So it's a really, really interesting one. But I actually think it's been going on for quite a while. And if you really look at the numbers, there's a lot of very, very slow scoring batters out there and has been and have been for a while. It's funny that the strike rate in test cricket actually started to drop even before the pace playing, pace playing pandemic. And I think from that perspective, it wasn't noticed. But when everyone was, you know, between 2000 and 2012 or whenever it was, the batting just kept getting quicker and quicker and quicker. I think after that, we actually saw quite a few players come in who were a lot better at just knocking the ball around um, and that sort of style. And and I suppose they just don't get attention, right? You know, uh, uh, Dimith Karunaratna is, is a fantastic player. Uh, you know, um, Latham is another one with a fantastic record. Then they're never going to get the attention that a more attacking player is going to get. And so I think that's just a natural thing that we've always seen across cricket. Um if there was if there was a move back towards grinding openers, I certainly think it started a long way back and is not a very recent thing. Although good on Craig Brathwaite for being so magnificent at it. Cosmic T says, uh, "How to get into the field of cricket analytics as a part timer? Um, I work as a data analyst who's very passionate about cricket. What are the sources you get your raw data from? Well, look, I mean, if you want my answer, um, uh, I wrote a blog, um, made a movie." Um, <laughs> What else was ESPN's uh, uh, global writer and then got headhunted. I'm not sure that's uh, the best way to get in. Essentially, all you're trying to do is tell teams things they don't know. It's getting harder and harder, and the data is getting more and more hidden. We used to have a lot of Hawkeye data that was available on some of the websites, and then they realized we were all using it. That doesn't exist anymore. Go to the BCCI's website today, you won't find any Hawkeye data. And certainly, it was still there when India or England played trying to think it was there for the next series as well. Um, but the more of us who wrote about it, which is hilarious because, of course, they would then use that same knowledge to be able to hire some of those people. But that's a whole different story. Um, but most of the major boards have taken the Hawkeye data off because they don't want us using it for free. Uh, ball by ball data, Cricksheet is your best place to be able to go there. Um, 
you can also buy data from people like Andrew Sampson. Uh, Crick, Crick uh, oh my God, what's it called? Crick Metrics uh, has some really good stuff as well, I think. I'm not sure if they have as much on international cricket, but they certainly have the franchise cricket. I got some data from them for the women's cricket recently. But yeah, it's not easy. But once you get your hands on it, it's then what you can do with it, right? And and essentially contact, uh, the best way, best way really is to contact people on LinkedIn and show them things they don't know and maybe they'll get you involved. Um, that generally has been the best way. The other way, of course, is, you know, doing maybe something more along the lines of what myself or Dan Weston did, which is maybe more public information um, and eventually sort of getting um, taken up from there. William says, I haven't ad- answered all the Patreon questions. I only saw nine this morning and I went through nine. William, you might have come in after the deadline. I can do that digitally later, but sadly, um, if they come in too late, I can't do much there. Uh, Young says, made a movie. Got to watch it now. Good luck finding it. Uh, Death for Gentlemen is what it's called. I think it's back on UK Netflix. I don't know if it's on European Netflix as well, but um, and my kids found it recently and they were like, want to watch it? I was like, no, I've seen it way too many times. Even when I get asked to go to events, I don't watch it. I just sort of turn up with them at the end. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. We've got a couple more questions to finish up with. Let me see what we've got here. Alan says, does it frustrate when Ravi Shastri or other commentators uh, about different topics go on about Lions suffering from not having Mitchell Stark, even though you've basically disproved this theory? <laughs> um, I thought it was funny today because Mitchell Stark would have bought about three overs if that was the case, and he wouldn't have even dug up the pitch. Yeah, we, we've looked into it. We, I came into it thinking that it made sense that left arm seam bowlers had a big um, impact on off spinners. Not, that's not what the numbers say. They don't say that it helps off spin particularly at all. Um, and, and I think the reason is, and this is what I, uh, Alan's probably talking about before, is that there's so it's so rare that you have multiple left armers in. If you think of to make even to make the footmarks work for. Um, for a left arm finger spinner from right arm seam bowlers, you actually need people bowling into those, you know, you need a lot of seam being bowled and you need, you know, three or four seamers at least in the game and maybe five or six. How often are you ever going to have even two left arm seamers in the game? So it doesn't make as much of a difference. Psychologically it might, but it doesn't seem to affect the figures at all, having left arm bowlers bowl and give right arm off spinners foot marks to aim at. Look, I, I, it's it's weird, Alan. I mean, there's a part of me that's like, wouldn't it be great if everyone uh, knew more about the game and, and did the sort of study that I do? But then I also think, well, if that's the case, I'd be out of a job. <laughs> um, and look, Ravi Shashi's great at many other things. I'm not sure that he needs to do that. That's a really common thing that everyone in cricket feels it wasn't easy for us i think it was um amol who maybe just disproved that one it wasn't easy for us to even work out how to search for it it was a really tricky one um and even if i put that to a lot of cricketers i think they'd still be like nah i still don't believe you but yes the one thing i like about cricket i I worked a job years ago Uh, i worked for Qantas in telephone sales and it was a terrible job in many different ways Uh, one thing that was really cool about it though is that when you work in international um travel uh, when you look at airfares and airlines and all that sort of stuff, which is what I did, there's no way you can know everything. It's an unknowable thing. And once you know everything about the industry, it changes and then it changes and then it changes. There's something great about cricket that's very similar. And I, I love the fact that we're still learning things all the time and not everyone knows them and people are going off old wives' tale that don't matter um, anymore. Um, so from that perspective, I think it's great. And that was something I only heard very recently from cricketers and, you know, you know, being able to look it up and disprove it or, or at least suggest there's no data that backs it up at the moment is, is a really interesting one. 
Callum says, did you watch um, uh, or have any thoughts or takeaways on the Zimbabwe versus West Indies test? Uh, Zimbabwe, West Indies, I saw little bits of it, more highlights. Uh, I knew that I had, in fact, this comes off the back of another question that someone else um, is going to, to ask. I knew that this was going to be one of the biggest months uh, that I was going to have. So I have India, Australia, I have the Women's World Cup, and I have England, New Zealand, and potentially I might be doing work on England, Bangladesh as well. Coming in, knowing that it was another test match on, it was actually a test match I would have liked to have um, seen more. I don't know how I would have found the stream of it. I don't know if it's being streamed in, in the UK or anything. But I would have probably watched a little bit more of it normally. But I just had I had pieces that I had to get ready. I had to prepare for the series. I had to prepare for the Women's World Cup. There's so much cricket on at the moment. I think I've I think there's a couple of days where we might have like 21 hours of cricket, consecutive hours of cricket being played. I think I worked that out uh, when the two test matches overlap and there's two women's T20 games um, in the middle. So not in the middle, on the end of that um, as well. Uh, it's a lot of cricket coming up in, in a short period of time. And so I've been focusing on that. I watched a lot of the highlights, some of the expanded highlights um, of the of the innings to start with. I'm, I actually talked about um, Tage on a previous podcast, if you want to go back and listen about that. I didn't talk about um, Mavuta. So Mavuta was someone who I saw bowl in the Manzanzi. I think it might have been the first year of the Manzanzi League. And I was like, I looked him up and he was this young leg spinner. And I think he whacked a couple in that as well. I thought, this is a guy who's going to really develop into a, in a really interesting cricketer. And he just, didn't he just sort of faded back into Zimbabwean cricket and you know every time I see his name I think oh this is the time I was really pleased to see him take a bunch of wickets um he's still only young so it's not like he's you know he's 32 and he's finally getting together I think he's 25 or 26 his batting hasn't come along the way that I was hoping that it might but I like him as a leg spinner I'm not sure he's a test leg spinner despite the fact he took wickets there I do really like him as a leg spinner interesting just You've, you've got Burl, Kramer, uh, Mavuta. You've got, obviously, Sekanda Raza. You've got all that sort of part-time. you got guys like Ray Price. Zimbabwe, over the last couple of years, if you know, um, have quite consistently had very good spin options available to them, which is I, I, going back, they had, what, Paul Strang, um, and I'm missing someone. They had one really good off spinner, didn't they, or finger spinner back in the day. Tracos as well. They're not thought of as a place that, is you know a spin bowling place but you have a look over the years and they consistently have really really good quality spin and a lot of it is i think the kind of pitches they have they're quite different than some of the pitches you get in south africa despite the fact that you know they're so close to each other abhishek says i wonder if there's a better way to concisely represent what really happened in a day in test cricket rather than just viewing the scorecard it's a good question. I think you've got, you know, expected average that uh, that crickviz do is a really good one using the hawkeye data gives you a good idea if a team overperformed or underperformed you know whether luck was involved all those sorts of things control percentage i think most people who sort of do analytics and stuff now really like things like control percentage i think crickviz call there's something else it might be oh i've forgotten the name of it i've used i've used it with them obviously before but i've forgotten the name of it but again that sort of stuff is really good which is very similar to um uh, again very similar to the um uh, what's the other thing we were talking about? The uh, expected average. Um, so I think those sorts of things are much better, but we're struggling to get people to talk about, you know, the very basics. I think we're way away from that sort of stuff. But yeah, I, I think it does give you an, an idea of of um, how that goes. Um, that sort of stuff, real time, is maybe not always as easy to um, do. And a lot of people don't understand it either. And, you know, I haven't tested the 
the um, CrickViz system versus someone else's system because I'm not even sure if anyone else has it. So it's a it's a sort of an untested system. Although I think of their systems, it's one of the ones that I probably like the most. Capital E says, "Hope you're having a great day." Just going to ask if you're covering the PCL. No, and that goes back to the question someone asked before. It's just that ne- this next month is just absolutely hectic uh, for me. I think I'm getting work in three different series, and the Women's World Cup is on. In fact, I might get some work with that as well. It's just just too much PSLs at the wrong time. It's it always comes at a really weird time for me because I usually try and take time off around the PSL. Um, and there was I think twice I've been offered work in it and the work has not come through. So even when I've tried to work on it, it hasn't happened. So unfortunately for me, it's just it, it is what it is. Um, I've got to I've got to streamline my time and my energy um, and everything else. And you know we're trying to cover as much as we can. Obviously, bringing um, you know um, Cheyenne in is certainly a situation where we want to do more and more going ahead. Uh, Cheyenne Khan is his name. Uh, you know uh, works for Sports Keter as well. He will help me be able to do extra stuff. And eventually, you know, we might get him to do more and more writing as well. In fact, he wrote some of the Rohit Sharma stuff in the um, in the video that we did on, uh, at the end of the first day's play. And we'll be getting him to do more and more. But I've got to train him on, bring him on. Also, you can imagine, this basically, the, our whole network basically works in my head, Nick's head, and Moku's head most of the time. So just training Cheyenne on all the different things is is quite hard. The PSL is just always going to be a step too far. I think without being, you know, without, uh, you know, the IPL, I've been offered some money, so I'll probably cover that, although I'm going to be on holiday for part of that. Major League Cricket, I might get some work. So again, I might cover that. That's probably the only way I'm ever going to cover major T20 tournaments. At the moment, they just, we don't get a lot of hits from them. You know, they're liked, but they're liked by a real niche group of people. Um, and and because of that, um, you know, I think that they are, I think it's a little bit, um, it, I don't know. It just doesn't seem to work for us. I, I've got no problem covering T20. I'd cover anything as, you know, anyone who's been on this, on, listen to my podcast or been on my YouTube channel will know I cover kind of everything. Um, whatever's interesting me that day, I sort of go down that, that, that rabbit hole. But, you know, until we are completely independent and we can decide what we want to do, I have to go where I'm getting offered freelance work or where the sponsors come in or anything else. Uh, I'd love to get to a point where I can just go, I'm going to do a week of the PSL and then I'm going to do one England, New Zealand test and then I'm going to do one India, Australia test. But at the moment, it doesn't really work that way. You know, I go where the money is uh, more often than not. Unmole. Uh, just to clarify, you consider the last uh, border Gavaskar trophy an inferior series to 2001 or the Ashes 2005. I think everyone does, but yes, certainly. Uh, I don't think it. I don't think it got the same kind of attention. I don't think in fifty years' time they'll be talking about that. I think it'll be thought of as a good series, and I think it will be one that is always mentioned. There's no way it's ever going to get remembered in the same way two thousand and one was. Um, go back and watch that if you need to know why. Two thousand and five, huge moment for Ashes cricket after everything that had come before it. Again, that's not quite the same situation with with India. Like India had been, you know, was in a completely different position from that perspective. Also, I think that 2005, 2001 had the benefit of all the best players were available, except for McGrath, who still played in that series. I think that's right. I'm trying to think if anyone else was out um, in that series. And 2001, my memory was most of the best players, again, were available. Uh, When we look back, you know, what... 
it depends perhaps on what Washington Sundar's career is going to be and Mohamed Siraj's career. And Nataraja may never play another test, right? That's a completely different situation. Uh, and those things really, really matter when you're looking at things standing the test of time through history. Uh, you can tell why certain series disappear. Even when some series have been very closely fought, if there isn't that many stars who did the big bulk of the work, you know, we tend to generate to the stars and what they have done. Anyway, that's me. That's the end of Wagon Wheel. Uh, if you're listening live on uh, Facebook or YouTube or Twitter, remember that we're doing the live uh, shows uh, hopefully most days after the day's play, after India Australia, certainly as many as we can tr- uh, can get to. Um, thank you to everyone. Subscribe. Um, press the bell icon if you're listening on uh, Spotify or um Apple, please uh, go across there and um, rate, review us, tell your friends, tell your auntie. Uh, you know, when you're you know doing an order and the delivery person comes to your house or the Uber Eats person, make sure you tell them all about the show. You know, the, the more support we get, the, the more of these shows we can do. But huge thanks to everyone for coming on live on the YouTube and as always to everyone who asks questions and everything else. I'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. <laughs>